This is Sean Bull and Jonah Chester with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. According to financial disclosures filed with the Federal Elections Commission, Senator Ron Johnson's re-election campaign paid $20,000 to the controversial law firm led by James Troupis. Troupis is under investigation for for his participation in creating a legal strategy for then-President Trump to pursue so that he could claim that he won the state of Wisconsin in the 2020 election. Johnson's campaign paid Troupis's firm and legal consultation Excuse me. Johnson's campaign paid Troupis's firm for legal consultation regarding a possible recount for the upcoming election, according to NBC News. It's not unusual for campaigns to begin legal strategies prior to an election to plan for the possibility of a tight election. But Johnson is under scrutiny for previous communications with Troupis in 2020, when Troupis when Troupis floated the idea of Wisconsin appointing pro-Trump electors despite having voted for Biden. Wisconsin's Department of Administration released a report on Friday detailing the $4.3 billion surplus in the state's budget. The budget surplus comes in large part to the increased tax revenue from sales taxes, buoyed by rampant inflation, and is the largest in the state's history. Governor Evers has proposed several different ways to spend the surplus, including tax cuts and spending increases, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. His plans have been rejected by the Republican-controlled legislature. Simultaneous to the state's surplus, many local governments and school boards have been struggling under budget deficits as state laws limit the amounts of money they can raise. The rate of return for absentee ballots in Wisconsin is significantly lower than it was in previous elections, reports the Associated Press. As of today, 38% of absentee ballots sent to voters have been returned. Ballots that aren't received by your county clerk's office by 8 o'clock on November the 8th will not be counted. The family of a Madison man fatally shot by a Dane County Sheriff's deputy on Friday say that the county has been slow to release information about the shooting. The shooting happened at a hotel in Windsor, and the details of the killing are sparse, including how many times the man was shot, the events leading up to the shooting, and whether the man was armed, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. His family is asking that any witnesses to the shooting please come forward and that the sheriff's office release details of the shooting so that they can mourn their relative. The deputy involved in the shooting has been put on administrative leave as per county policy. An assisted living facility on the east side of Madison has announced that they are converting to private apartments and that current residents have 60 days to vacate the premises, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The move follows a pattern of other private assisted living facilities across the state, which are pivoting away from accepting money from Medicaid to house elder or disabled Wisconsinites who struggle to pay market rates. Residents will be assisted in finding new homes by a managed care organization that works with Medicaid recipients. No civilians or personnel were injured during a gas leak in a four-story residential building in Sun Prairie late Sunday night. According to Sun Prairie Fire and Rescue, the gas leak occurred in the 600 block of West Main Street and affected about 100 residents and numerous pets. The leak was found and contained, and ventilation of the building took several hours. And now, on to today's top stories. PFAS, otherwise known as forever chemicals, have been linked to a plethora of health issues, such as developmental issues in children and increased risk for multiple types of cancer. Most PFAS we are exposed to comes from firefighting foam, which was used across the state and ended up in our drinking water. 
Though PFAS-laden foam has now been banned, fire departments across the state still have it sitting around, being too costly to dispose of on their own. But today, the, the state DNR announced a new program to help those fire departments get rid of their unwanted PFAS-laden firefighting foam. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. The State Department of Natural Resources, or DNR, announced today that they are beginning a program to collect PFAS-laden firefighting foam from fire departments across the state for safe disposal. Otherwise known as forever chemicals due to how long it takes for them to break down naturally, PFAS has been found in a variety of consumer products like nonstick Teflon and in industrial products like firefighting foam. North Shore Environmental Construction, a Wisconsin-based environmental cleanup and management company, will lead the disposal efforts. The company expects to collect and dispose of at least 25,000 gallons of the foam waste throughout the state. David Johnson is the executive vice president of North Shore. He says that disposing of the foam isn't an easy task. The best-known way to currently dispose of the foam is to send it to a chemical landfill in Alabama. And it's a complete self-contained landfill. What they do is they take the material and basically solidify the block, for lack of a better term, and then that block gets placed into the landfill cell um, where it remains until the future development on how to get rid of these materials. These solidified blocks are much less likely to seep into the groundwater, and even if they do, the landfill has its own water treatment plant on site to treat the water. This is crucial because once PFAS is released into the environment, it's extremely difficult to clean up. The state DNR, along with the State Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protections, were provided funding for the program in the 2021-2023 state budget. North Shore was selected as the contractor for the program in September of this year. While state law does ban the use of PFAS-containing foam except during emergencies or testing, over 60 county fire departments across Wisconsin still have the foam. While these departments have mostly switched over to PFAS-free firefighting foam, it still sits unused in firehouses across the state, waiting to be disposed of. Mike Stanley is the president of the State Fire Chiefs Association, a network of fire chiefs from across Wisconsin. Stanley says that while there are very few applications for the foam allowed under state law, fire departments still keep it around in case of emergencies. Periodically, and unfortunately not too often, do we get into that you know life safety issue where you're going to save somebody's life by spraying that foam. You know, and an example that you know most commonly would come to mind is somebody that's pinned or trapped in a, in a vehicle that's on fire. You know, using it in that narrow application, that's what it, it's still for, but you know, not using it for, for anything other than that. No training or, you know, no, just, oh, let's proactively spray this around just in case. You know, those days are long gone. Firefighting foam used by many departments, including the Madison Fire Department, now no longer contain PFAS. But PFAS-containing foam is still used at airports. That's because FAA regulations require airport operators to use foams that contain PFAS. David Johnson says that this is because, unfortunately, the PFAS foam is the most effective at putting out fires. PFAS firefighting foam is a fairly common foam is for Class B fires, basically referring to oil substances. And what it does is it creates a film coating on top of the oil that'll keep the oil from igniting. Most municipalities in Wisconsin have it. It is a 
fairly common compound that fire departments would use. The new collection program kicked off in Appleton today, where David Johnson of North Shore says that they've already collected around 195 five-gallon buckets and around 12 55-gallon drums of the foam from the Fox Valley area. But if the PFAS-laden foam has been known to be a problem for years, why begin collecting and disposing of the foam now? Mike Stanley says that the answer boils down to funding. We certainly didn't want to create an unfunded mandate for the fire departments. You know, so many of them in this state are doing brat fries and pancake breakfasts and stuff just to, just to squeak by and buy, you know, a couple new helmets and sets of boots. So for that to happen and then, you know, for the identify what the quantity was that's out there statewide, you know, go through the RFP process, you know, for the DNR to identify a, a suitable and qualified vendor to, to take it up. You know, so that process took a little time. And while it is an opt-in program, Stanley says he doesn't think many fire departments are going to shy away from the program. The departments, you know, want to do the right thing. You know, they're, they're eager to accurately or, you know, properly, is probably a better term, dispose of this. They've been anxiously awaiting this opportunity. You know, I don't think it's going to be a door-to-door, you know, give us your PFOS and, you know, no, you can't have mine type of scenario. The departments want to, to be rid of it and, like I said, want to be, be handled and disposed of properly. You know, so they're, they are absolutely chomping at the bit for this, this program to get started so that you know, they can take advantage of this opportunity. The program is expected to run at least for the next few months. Fire departments that want to dispose of their firefighting foam should contact North Shore Environmental Construction. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Madison saw its first snowfall of the season today, though thankfully it was not enough to stick. For a full weather breakdown, we go to weather producer Caitlin Davis. Weather is at all-time snow, or at least it feels like it. Cool temperatures, high breezes, and snow. What a way to start off a Monday morning. And this weather isn't leaving yet either. Temperatures are currently sitting at 38 degrees with cool winds coming from the north-northwest at 17 miles per hour with gusts up to 34 miles per hour. Due to the high wind speed, temperatures are currently feeling about 10 degrees cooler and we have been feeling that all day. The sun did not want to make its way through the clouds today either, so no warmth added there and we are still currently seeing an 88% cloud cover. Humidity is sitting at around 57%. The historical average for temperatures on October 17th are 59.2 degrees, which we are not even close to feeling, especially with that wind chill. With the sun now not rising until 7.14 a.m., it has been making it a lot easier for us to want to stay in bed, especially with this weather. Sunset is now happening at 6.11 p.m. Believe it or not, Lake Monona's water temperature is warmer than the weather outside. The temps of the lake are currently sitting at 57 degrees. Tomorrow's high is looking to reach 46, but we are still going to see these high wind speeds up to 20 miles per hour coming from the northwest and a very slight chance for rain. Tomorrow is going to be variably cloudy for most of the day. Higher wind gusts are possible and cooler real field temperatures are to be expected with these high wind speeds. Wednesday is not looking to be much better. High wind speeds again and the high only looking to reach 47 degrees, but we should be seeing more sun on Wednesday. Thursday is looking to be a bit better with a high of 53 degrees and lower wind speeds just around 10 miles per hour. Friday into the weekend is looking to warm up a bit into the 60s and Sunday even possibly reaching into the 70s. 
with your WORT weather report here in Madison. I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis. It's now 6.18 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. November midterm election is less than one month away, and last week, Governor Tony Evers met up with GOP challenger Tim Michaels under a different set of Friday night lights for their one and only debate. The two sparred on multiple issues, from abortion policy to crime to inflation across Wisconsin. To help break down the debate, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with J.R. Ross, editor over at WizPolitics.com, to talk about what set the candidates apart and the significance of the only debate between the two gubernatorial candidates. So, J.R., obviously this was an hour-long debate, and so we aren't going to be able to go over and cover everything that happened during the debate. But just to kick things off, what were, what were some of the highlights of Friday's debate? What were, what were some of the key issues where the two candidates really sort of highlighted their differences? Well, there were a lot of disagreements, but not a lot of really sharp elbows thrown. Um, there also were a lot of specifics offered by either candidate. I mean, they obviously disagree sharply on abortion you know, things like that. But there wasn't really a kind of a moment where you went, ah, that's really a, a huge blow on either side of the, uh, of the, of the, uh, the race. So really with debates anymore, uh, campaigns are not looking to win a race in a debate, They're looking to avoid losing a race in a debate. What I mean by that is you're trying to avoid a moment where you have a gaffe or a viral moment that ends up on social media or in a TV ad that comes back to bite you later on. Maybe you, you know, strike gold and have a great moment ends up on TV ads. Sarah Galuski had a good moment in a debate this summer, for example, in her Senate campaign that went up on the air. But for the most part, just looking to avoid the big mistake. And, and generally speaking, the two of them really did that. And so one thing that I saw that was sort of mentioned on social media during the debate was the uh, sort of lack of specifics and more generalities uh, that were done by Tim Michaels during the, the debate. From, from sort of your point of view, did, did you sort of see that and sort of going from there? Is that, is that sort of a strategy that you think sort of works for, for candidates? Sure. I mean, you know, he's the challenger. So a lot of challengers don't offer a very detailed plan of like exactly how they structure the next budget, for example. They're not going to give you that level of detail. All I have to do is try to disqualify the other guy, the incumbent, and make him unappealing. Um, you know, and to be fair, Governor Evers didn't offer a whole lot of specifics either. There weren't a lot of deep dives into policy positions or numbers. They kind of stuck to general talking points, um, which, you know, really, you think about the ad spending for the governor's campaign. They are outspending. We took what what Evers is spending plus the group supporting him versus what Michaels is spending and the, the group's backing him, the governor has a significant fund, a significant advantage on the air in terms of paid media. So they're communicating more through that than they are through a debate. 
And I, I, I do want to sort of get into uh, the role that sort of adds play in this sort of election here. And I, wa- I want to get into that in a second here, but just sort of looking at this debate here. So this is the the one and only debate that these two mm-hmm. candidates will be participating in. So I, I sort of want to ask, do you think that this is that this debate gave voters enough information to sort of uh, decide who they vote for? Is one debate enough for an election? Uh, good question. I went back and looked. And going back to 1998, this is the first time we've had one debate since 98. Now, in 1998, much different race, right? Tommy Thompson running for a fourth term, which he won. He won like two-thirds of the vote in 94. He was heavily favored against Ed Garvey, a Madison attorney. That race never really took off. Whereas you have here a race where you have Tony Evers in his first term. You have a challenger in what could be a good year for Republicans, you know, depending what poll you want to look at. And what gauge you want to use, I mean, historically speaking, the party in power in the White House struggles in the midterm election, right? So that's one way, reason why I think the Republicans could have a good year this fall. It's a different race than it was in 98. This is a very, much, very much a contested race. But again, the strategy about debates has changed significantly in 20-some years. Now, again, it's about avoiding that mistake, that, that viral moment more than anything else, especially when you're talking about a race for governor U.S. Senate. There's not as much attention as there is for a presidential debate. Just think about a Friday night in Wisconsin. What are people doing in October? They're high school football games. They're, they're going to stuff. They're, you know, they have uh, social events to go to. There's not a lot of people tuning in to a Friday night debate in October in Wisconsin. And so sort of going off that a little bit, uh, sort of looking at this and looking at this race in particular, do, do you think that maybe the ad spending uh, sort of is sort of overtaking the importance and the role of debates in this election, uh, seeing as we've only had one debate and uh, it's been brought up several times that this is one of the most expensive gubernatorial races in in the country at the moment. So it, I, I sort of want to know what you think about that, the, the importance of having ads versus the importance of having this sort of debate. Well, I, I asked a lot of insiders on both sides of the aisle, you know, why just one debate? Why would both sides agree to do just one, considering what's at stake in this election? The answer that I got were that there wasn't a whole lot of upside for the two of them. If you watch the debate on Friday, um, I don't know that people would consider either Tony Evers or, or Tim Michaels great orators. Um, the debates were, their answers were sometimes kind of halting and, and fragmented. There weren't a lot of specifics offered. They Neither was terribly smooth on the stump. So, for Evers, you're the incumbent. You'd rather communicate through your ads because you have a dominant voice on the airwaves and avoid that mistake, that opportunity for your opponent to be seen as your equal on stage. For Michaels, he had to do cleanup after his two debates in the primary. If you go back and look in July and August, he was you know, having to go back and clarify answers about Donald Trump and where he stands about the 2020 election after those debates. He wanted to avoid that. He avoided it on Friday. So doing one for him also makes sense because you're lessening the opportunity for you to make that mistake that causes you to have to do cleanup going forward. And people see these ads much more than they see the debates. They're just the communications are uh, easier to reach people. Now, the flip side is you could argue it's not as informative, right? Most of the campaign ads we're seeing are negative. The reason that they're negative is because studies show negative ads work. People who see them are more informed about the issues. Um, know more about what's going on. It's just studies show they work. And as long as you run negative campaigns or negative ads and you win, you're going to keep doing that. Uh, but so you don't get as much of an informative, maybe even-sided look at an issue as you do in a debate, but the ads are the way people communicate these days. 
And sort of maybe playing off both of those there, you know, we are less than one month away from the November 8th election. So do you think that there are still voters out there who will be swayed either one way or another uh, after hearing this debate? Do, do you think that this, you know, this late into the election cycle, do you think that this debate was was actually, you know, of, of use for the voters? Yeah, I mean, as somebody who eats, eat, lives, eat, lives and breathes politics and coverage of it, I wonder who those people are who aren't decided three weeks out. So I see these ads. I've seen them for months. I've been covering them for months. I've been covering the campaigns for months. But you have to think about the average voter, the average swing voter. They have other priorities in life. They have concerns and you know, things they have to get done in their daily lives. They're not tuning in daily to the coverage of these campaigns. They are late deciders. There's, you know, a chunk out there trying to figure out where they're going to be come election day. The last Marquette University Law School poll last week had a close race. That's still a decent chunk of people undecided. The questions are, will those undecided show up if they're not happy with either candidate and pick one, the lesser of two evils, or will they stay home? That's one of the great questions every fall when you get that undecided sliver of the electorate. And two, we still have an independent candidate on the ballot in Wisconsin. Even though Joan Beglinger has dropped out of the race, her name will be on the ballot. The Marquette poll, she's at 4%. Now, I don't know if she's going to get 4% come election day, uh, looking at the history of the Marquette polls, you see independent candidates doing better in the polls earlier in the year than they actually do on Election Day because voters aren't really happy with their choices. Some voters aren't really happy with their choices, right? So, But will Joan Bengler poll 4% come Election Day? If she does, it lowers the bar for where Tony Rivers has to hit to win re-election, and it makes Tim Michael's life more complicated to get that winning formula. That's something to watch, too. Well, JR, we're sort of running up against the clock here. Do you have just any final thoughts on uh, the gubernatorial debate that you'd like to uh, share with me here? No, you know, it, interesting, but not the not one that's going to be uh, people going to remember for a long time as being a really dynamic debate again. But it wasn't that big mistake that we saw. There are a couple of lines that people go, "Oh, it was the best line they delivered," but I'm not sure that people are seeing a major moment from that gubernatorial debate. They went, "Oh, that's going to change the race." I've been talking with J.R. Ross, editor over at WISPolitics.com, about last week's gubernatorial debate. Uh, the midterm election will take place on November 8th. J.R., thank you so much for talking with me. Anytime. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Jonah Chester. Thanks for joining us. This Thursday marks the anniversary of the publication in London of an illustration of the Indian famine in 1877. The British prioritized free market policies and exported thousands of tons of grain, while millions starved in what became the Great Indian Famine of 1876 through 1878. Yet many ordinary people organized and fought back. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Thursday, October 20th, is the anniversary of the 1877 publication of a drawing of starving Indians printed in the Illustrated London News, one of the most popular journals of the Victorian period, with a weekly circulation of 300,000 in 1863. 
During the 1876-1878, starvation claimed between 5.5 to 9.5 million Indians or more. The truth is, no one knows how many died because the British, who ruled much of India during this time, tried to conceal what was happening. The precipitating event was crop failures following the worst El Nino on record in South Asia, Africa, and South America. But in this crisis, British action in India turned it into a famine and even a genocide, according to some historians. And much of it could have been avoided. Crop failures can be offset by actions such as tax relief, distributing food without work requirements, suspending food exports, and using price controls, actions that may have been taken by previous Mongol rulers. Even British rulers handled an earlier Indian crop failure in 1873-1874 differently. That time, there were few or perhaps no deaths in India as British Governor Richard Temple organized swift relief efforts importing grain from Burma, but Temple was strongly criticized by British authorities for spending too much money. So when the famine of 1876 struck, he did not repeat his earlier mistake. While Indians were starving, the British allowed hundreds of thousands of tons of grain to be exported and provided Indians only meager relief. This part of the response was similar to actions taken by the British in their first colony, Ireland, during the Great Potato Famine of 1845 to 1852. But in India, the British took even more extreme measures. The British set up large-scale camps and criminalized vagrancy. Many starving people did not meet narrow eligibility criteria for relief camps. Like workhouses, the camp's poor conditions also dissuaded all but the most desperate from obtaining any government relief. Making matters worse, the Viceroy of India, Lord Lytton, had absolutely no knowledge of India when he was appointed as its supreme ruler by Queen Victoria. During the initial days of the famine, he organized lavish ceremonies called the Grand Delhi Durbar, where Queen Victoria was made Empress of India, or Kaiser Ihand. It included a week-long feast for 68,000 officials, the most colossal and expensive meal in world history. Indians remember him as their Nero. Newly constructed railroads, lauded as a safeguard against famine, were instead used to ship grain from outlying drought-stricken districts to central depots for hoarding and protection from rioters. Likewise, the telegraph ensured that price hikes were coordinated in a thousand towns at once, regardless of local supply needs. India's viceroy, Lighton, opposed any public efforts to stockpile grain or interfere with market forces. Speculators boosted prices higher. Lighton even raised taxes during the famine to pay for his costly war in Afghanistan. In the camps, Temple instituted a wage of one pound of rice per day, half of what imprisoned felons received unsupplemented by meat or vegetables, camp dwellers had too few calories to sustain life. Temple's wage was fewer calories than provided in the Nazi death camp Buchenwald. Adults in a coma consumed 1,500 calories a day. The Temple wage provided only 127 calories more than that. An Indian male doing heavy labor would need another 2,200 calories a day to be healthy. Camp inmates were working, building railroads and canals. The results were predictable. Grown men shrank to 60 pounds. By one calculation, the annual death rate at the camps was 94%. People in the relief camps in the Bombay region organized Gandhi-like protests against the rice reduction and the distance test that blocked wandering starvation victims from getting help at the relief camps. Governor Temple called the protests passive resistance. The movement began in January 1877 when families on village relief refused orders to march to the newly militarized work camps where men were separated from their spouses and children. They were subsequently 
subsequently joined by thousands more who left the camps in protest of the starvation wage and mistreatment by overseers. The horrors of the famine reached England thanks to the reporting of crusading journalists, including William Digby and Robert Knight. Letters to the London Times by Florence Nightingale and others sent back by missionaries and travelers. Many English tried to help with charitable donations. The disaster led to a critical royal commission, but it had little effect. Incredibly, there were 12 famines during British rule over India, resulting in 30 million deaths. As a reaction to the famine, reformers founded the Indian National Congress, which became a key organization in the struggle for Indian independence from Britain. Hopefully, we will learn lessons from this period as we face the possibility of fossil fuel-worsened climate-induced famines. One can hope. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.38 p.m. Excuse me, it's now 6.39 p.m. And you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Fall is traditionally a time for Madison artists to open up their gallery doors to the public, and this year there are more opportunities than ever to go gallery hopping. On Friday, October 28th, Communication is hosting an artist night featuring a cavalcade of artists at venues across the city. On this morning's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with some of the artists involved in putting together the event to learn more about their work and how the event stands in solidarity with local artists who are boycotting the Madison Museum of Contemporary Arts Triennium. We have five artists joining us today. Uh, Jennifer Baston is a photographer and multimedia artist and director of communication. Jennifer, welcome back to the 8 o'clock bus. Thanks so much. Also on the line is Erica Haynes, a fabric crafter and owner of Fiddlestick Knits. Erica, welcome to the 8 o'clock bus. Thank you for having me. And also Cat Karma Lover Culbertson is a full-time artist from Beloit who's now living in Monona. Welcome, Cat. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and KT is a fiber artist studying at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome, KT. Thank you so much. And last but not least, Jenny Hefferin is a small business owner, woodworker, and maker who's organizing the Badri's participation in Artist Night. Welcome, Jenny. I'm so excited to be here. So, Jennifer Bastien, tell us, why did you feel a need to create Artist Night? So, this is sort of a two-pronged answer, and I'll try to make it as quick as possible. We have long been pushing as an organization and as individuals, the, the core collective of communication, for artists to have more opportunities, more equitable compensation, and to challenge other arts organizations in this city and around the city to do the same. You know, it, we are not connected to institutions or dependent on university funding, so we are able to do more pushing on that front. Um, so that's one thing. 
we also want more opportunities for artists. But the way that this actually started was because we saw what was happening at MOCA. We saw what was happening with the triennial artists and them not being, their needs not being met and the museum not holding themselves accountable for what happened with the triennial, which is obviously a longer story than we can delve completely into. But we wanted, as an organization, to boycott MOCA's gallery night and while still providing an alternative for artists and arts organizations to you know, share their work and also continue supporting financially each other. Um, so not every organization involved is boycotting, but that doesn't exclude them from supporting artists on Artist Night. And we want this to be an event that will continue you know, regularly throughout next year and the following years. So in it, aside from not being directly connected with Momoka or other institutions, uh, as you mentioned, what, what's different about Artist Night? Artist Night is trying to prioritize artists um, and what they need um, in terms of, you know, exposure with compensation. So, you know, encouraging arts venues to make sure that artists are getting some kind of financial compensation, that what artists want is the priority. You know, it's called Artist Night for a reason. It's not always traditional for artists to have control over the events that they're participating in, and we're trying to encourage venues to do that. Um, and I think a lot of the venues participating are really understanding that. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, let's talk to each of the artists here we have on the line, and let's talk a little bit about what you have planned for the 28th. Kat Culbertson, let's start with you. What do you intend to do on the 28th, and what can people expect? So I'm actually doing a mural there right now, and I'm planning on having some work that is my personal work there with me, um, but I'm also going to be live painting. I did a mural there over the summer in their courtyard, and I was um, really enjoying my time with them, and they asked me to do another one inside in an old fur vault. So it's a very interesting room. And this is at Rabinia Courtyard uh, off of yes. East Washington Avenue. Yes. So, so what? Why did the why did the fur vault appeal to you? Um, I didn't even know that fur vaults were a thing, but I really, I think that, so the door of the vault is still present in the room and the hardware in it is really interesting and beautiful. And so I'm going to be expanding on the shapes and that, and I'm able to paint all four walls. So I like feeling completely encompassed by my work. And if you're live painting, is there going to be music or other things uh, going on at the same time? I mean, I'm always playing my playlist, you know. So <laughs> we can we can have some music going on, but they always have events there. Robinia is really good about having live music and having different activities kind of going on. So they'll have options and they have really good food there as well. And you don't find it distracting to have people looking over your shoulder while you're painting? No, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> and also I'm 6'2", so most people can't see over my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Erica Haynes, tell us about Fiddlesticks and how uh, Fiddlesticks will be participating in Artist Night on the 28th. Yes, so we will be hosting two artists. Uh, KT will be one of them, and we will also be hosting Lauren McElroy, sometimes better known as Mother of Pearl. And we are just so excited to get to support some wonderful fiber artists in our community and uh, make sure more people see the incredible art that they're making. And KT, what will you have on exhibit at that? Are, are you going to be doing live knitting, for example? <laughs> No, um, I'm actually probably going to be uh, showing the tops that I've been crocheting that have text on them that relate to my mental health. Um, there's one that says emotionally constipated, and there's another one that's UV light reactive, so that when you shine a light on it, 
a black light, it says, I want to be seen. As a queer person, it's been, and I'm, I'm a transplant from Massachusetts, and I'm, I've been able to come to my identity during the pandemic. So all of this work relates to my identity. There's a hair piece that I want to put in. That's actually my, when I shaved my head for the first time, I sent the clippings to be spun into yarn. So I crocheted a granny square out of the hair. So it's called Ode to She Her. So I'm really excited to be sharing. Yeah, I'm really excited to be sharing um, a bunch of work, especially outside of the university and within the community that I really want to be immersed with. So I'm so excited to see everybody's stuff. And what? why did you choose knitting or fiber art as your medium? Uh, actually... I went to school for photography, and when I applied to UW, I was doing augmented reality. So I have a lot of tech experience, and I, I've, I play a lot of video games, and I, I have all of a lot of skills in that. But I grew up doing knit and crochet, and it was something that was really accessible to me as a kid because my mom was doing it. And it started with acrylic yarn that was kind of crappy that you could get from, you know, regular stores. And it didn't, it wasn't soft like it is now. You know, you could go to Joann's and Michael's now and get like soft acrylic yarn, which wasn't really a thing when I was growing up. So I, I really like the conversation of the intersection between queerness and fiber arts, as well as accessibility in terms of like, you know, you can purchase an artisanal skein at Erica's store. And you can also crochet in the same skein or in the same I don't know whatever you're doing yeah project you can do that whole thing with all different kinds of fibers and you can have a conversation about class and access and all that and it's it's really really that's the conversation that I want to have with my work was there an aha moment where you suddenly realized that this thing that you had learned with your your, you know back at home about how to knit could be an art form The first ever project that I made in graduate school was a crocheted banner that says, I don't know what I'm doing. And I hung it up on my balcony (laughs) on the west side. And that was the start of it. And then I designed my own sweater that will be in the show. That's from the X-Files poster that says, I want to believe. And I actually, the, um, what is this called? Collar. The collar part, the sorry, my brain is farting. The cast off was too tight. So you can't actually fit your head through it. So when I try and fit my head through it, it's like, I want to believe that I can successfully put this on. But it's also, you know, relates back to this, I want to believe that I can fit in with everybody else and Mm -hmm. exist and live my life. And the Midwest has been a really interesting place for me to experiment with that. Interesting is a interesting adjective. uh, Is that is that a positive or a negative? Um, as someone, so I'm, I'm autistic. And so interesting to me is very exciting. Things that are interesting are, I don't know, much more, I don't know, give me much stimulating. more Stimulating. Yeah, stimulating. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Jenny Hefferin, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Badri and what's going to be happening on the 28th there? Yeah, the Badri is a community makerspace and we have many, many members, over 20 of whom are going to be showing work on Artist Night. Um, We will have some live music on instruments made at the Badgeri. We will have a variety of paintings, sculpture, woodworking, glasswork, jewelry, also refreshments. And we'll also be offering tours of our makerspace in case anybody is interested in learning more about our space and potentially becoming a member. And uh, Jennifer, just sort of in closing, tell us how many venues are participating in Artist Night? We've got 16 uh, different venues, and then 
I mean, I actually was going to make a count of the amount of artists that will be involved either with work on display as exhibitions or, you know, in something interactive. But I think there's easily close to 100 artists involved. That's astounding. I mean, that. I mean, how does that compare with the participation in, in other events like, say, Momoka's Gallery Night? Well, they definitely have a larger reach. They've had, you know, 30-some years to promote this series of events, and I think it has been very successful for venues. What hasn't been as easy is the accessibility for smaller venues, for nonprofits or arts venues that are more DIY style, because of the cost of the of being in the you know listed in the map or the pamphlet. What we're trying to do is lower some of that cost and make it more inclusive to more DIY or um, alternative arts venues. And Jennifer, if people want to find out more details about the schedule and things like that, what's the best way for them to do that? So they can follow our social media uh, on Instagram. It's Communication Madison. Uh, if they want to go to our website. It's communicationmadison.com. There is a little blurb on our homepage. You can click on that, see a list of all the venues. Um, before we get to the 28th, we will have an interactive map, like a Google Maps widget, so people can plan their route because not everything is on the east side. There's some things down, closer to downtown. There's um, We've got uh, Lolita G is going to have some work up on Monroe Street. So we want to make sure that everyone can figure out how to get everywhere they're going. But go to our website. You'll be able to see all of the information you need. All right. We've been speaking with artists Jennifer Basting, Erica Haynes, KT, Kat, Karma Lover, Culbertson, and Jenny Hefferin. Artists Night takes place at a variety of venues across Madison on Friday, October 28th. Thank you all for joining us on the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two 70s classics recently shown at UW Cinematheque. Time and After is a fun time travel sci-fi story with H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper. Then it's The 7% Solution, an enjoyable missing Sherlock Holmes story. A 19th century gentleman. What? You don't close your eyes. And a 20th century woman. Well, neither do you. Join forces to capture a criminal from the past. At large, in the modern world. That was a clip from the trailer for Time After Time, directed by Nicholas Meyer. He wrote the screenplay based on the original story idea by Carl Alexander and Stephen Hayes. This is one of my favorite movies from the 70s. It came out in 1979, and it's one of my favorite sci-fi movies ever. It showed last weekend at UW Cinematheque, along with The 7% Solution and The Day After. All movies associated with Nicholas Meyer, who graciously spent time with the audience after each movie and signed some of his books. Time After Time has an imaginative premise. What if H.G. Wells hadn't just written about a time machine, but invented one? The story begins with a ghastly murder. The scene then shifts to a comfortable Victorian setting in 1893, where Wells, a fun role by Malcolm McDowell, is getting together with some gentleman friends for dinner and a bit of port. Wells is waiting for one more friend to make a special announcement. Dr. John Stevenson. Stevenson, well played by David Warner, enters Wells's circle, and Wells reveals his time machine drawings, and then the machine itself with a fine flourish. His friends are doubtful, especially Stevenson, and Wells admits he hasn't worked up the courage to try it yet. 
They go back upstairs only to be interrupted by Scotland Yard doing a house-to-house search for Jack the Ripper. The police notice Stevenson's bag and incriminating contents. The friends are shocked, especially the idealistic Wells, but Stevenson again gives the police the slip and soon everyone departs. This leaves Wells with his housekeeper who wonders how Stevenson could have got past them at the front door. The police having searched the place and shown no windows or other exits were used. Wells suddenly flashes on where Stevenson has gotten to or is it when? He rushes down to the basement and sees that his precious time machine is gone. He is horrified, especially when he sees where Stevenson has gone to the future. 1979 to be exact. The machine has bounced back to Wells' basement, so Wells decides to return the Ripper to justice. Wells, a socialist, is so upset partially because he believes he has let loose a monster on a future utopia. Wells and his housekeeper assemble all the cash and jewels to trade with the natives, and he is off to the future, and our story really takes off. Wells uses his machine and is whisked to 1979, which is imagined with audio recordings of various periods on the way to 1979, a fun imaginative time travel sequence. Myers mentioned in his aftertalk how proud he was of that idea and how well it worked. Wells ends up in San Francisco, where his time machine is part of an exhibit, and soon enlists the help of a foreign exchange bank clerk, Amy, a very enjoyable Mary Steenbergen. To say more would ruin the fun. It's available on various streaming services. Now for another imaginative movie from Nicholas Meyer. Universal presents The 7% Solution, Nicholas Meyer's best-selling mystery from the personal memoirs of Dr. John H. Watson. That was a clip from the trailer for The 7% Solution, directed by Herbert Ross. Ross, over the years, has directed some great films like Play It Again, Sam, 1972, an early Woody Allen movie, and Steel Magnolias, 1989, a wonderful woman-centered film with a great ensemble cast. Check it out on Netflix. This movie came out in 1976. It's based on a book by the same name by Nicholas Meyer, who also wrote the screenplay. This is a fun movie imagining an untold story of Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, well played by Nicole Williamson, is in the depths of cocaine addiction, hence the title, and his worried landlady has called Holmes's old friend and colleague Dr. John Watson. Watson, the always great Robert Duvall, who hasn't seen him in months, rushes over and is alarmed. He enlists Sherlock's older and some say smarter brother to get Sherlock help. Mycroft Holmes is convincingly played by Charles Gray, who immediately comes up with a clever plan to get Sherlock to Vienna to seize Dr. Sigmund Freud, the always exceptional Alan Arkin. Freud has reportedly found a cure for cocaine addiction. Mycroft and Watson enlist the help of Professor James Moriarty, a fun cameo by Laurence Olivier. It seems Sherlock, for reasons which become clear later, has fixated on a seemingly innocent Moriarty as the greatest of all criminal masterminds. Moriarty reluctantly cooperates when Mycroft threatens to remind him of their past relationship. The ruse works, and an agitated Holmes and an obliging Watson head to Vienna with a fine bloodhound, Toby, in tow. Eventually, Holmes and Freud meet, and our story really takes off. Holmes and Freud, along with the faithful Dr. Watson, are drawn into solving a crime involving one of Freud's former patients, Lola DeVoe, a fun Vanessa Redgrave. Along the way, we get a pretty good villain, Baron von Leinsdorf, played by Jeremy Kemp. All in all, a fun film, well worth watching. Unfortunately, I missed the third film in the series, the anti-nuclear war film The Day After. I hope to remedy that soon. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. 
And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz, and Nicholas Leap for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Nate Weggiehau also produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Jonah Chester. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. <laughs>